Welcome to the season finale of The Podvocate. We hope everyone is healthy and you and your families are safe. Like last season, today's episode will be a roundtable discussion among the current team. We're talking about the value of a college education. Back when the 2020 election dominated headlines, college affordability played a starring role in the candidates' conversations. And in the wake of uh, COVID-19's economic fallout, the student loan crisis is sure to resume that starring role in our national discourse. Each of us here on the board is obviously a college graduate with varied majors and years away from college. We'll be sharing our experiences and our outcomes, whether college was worth it, and what a college education could be in the future. Join us in this spirited debate about the value of American higher education. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podcast. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so my name is Jacob Kupferman. I had a, a very high honor of serving as an associate editor this year. Um, I actually went to two undergraduate institutions. So I did two years at Indiana University in Bloomington and wound up graduating from the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I was a communications major. I graduated in 2016 and uh, upon graduation took a job in marketing um, with my communications degree. I'm Haley Burridge. I graduated from the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado in May of 2013. My undergrad major was philosophy. And then when I was at Boulder, they did not have a pre-law track. So I had a concentration in law and society, which was their version of a pre-law track. Um, after graduation um, in 2013, the job market was still not great because of the recession. Lucky me, I'm going into phase two of that now with my law school um, career. Um, so I took the first job that I was offered. Um, I worked at a, a staffing firm in Lombard, Illinois while living with my parents for seven months. My name is Jim Alleritz. I was Northwestern University class of 2016. Uh, I double majored in music cognition and sound design for film and theater. And after undergrad, I spent a couple of years working as a freelance theater artist doing sound and occasionally hanging lights and also supplementing that with some odd jobs in retail and anyone who would give me money for rent. My name is Radhika Sutherland. I graduated from undergrad in 2011 from the University of Illinois which for me was out of state, um, but I went in with a full ride scholarship. I left University of Illinois in 2011 and um, worked in the job market for a few years related to my molecular biology degree. Um, and then I went to grad school and graduated with a degree in clinical therapy from University of Louisville in 2016. Um, that was in-state tuition for me, even though it was a graduate degree because it's a public university, in-state still applied. Um, and then in uh, 2018, I started law school at Loyola, which was a private institution. Um, so right now, basically, I'm looking at between my undergrad, my husband's undergrad, my grad school, and my law school, 
the Sutherland family is looking at around a quarter of a million dollars of student debt. That is terrible. <laughs> that is a lot. I, you know, it's a number that I've had to sit with for a while. And um, when I started law school, I realized it was going to get up to that. Uh, and so it kind of seems fake to me now, to be honest. It's monopoly money at this point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I am Matt Doran. Uh, I graduated from Marist College in 2005 uh, with a bachelor's in English with a concentration in writing. Uh, Marist is a small private liberal arts school in upstate New York. Uh, afterward, I did a number of things. I was a high school and middle school teacher in Baltimore while getting a master's in education from Johns Hopkins. I taught English abroad in China and Japan. I got a master of fine arts and creative writing from San Diego State, ran my own company for four years and worked at uh, magazines and newspapers as a managing editor before coming to law school. I have been very lucky that I uh, I got out of undergraduate uh, debt-free based on an athletic scholarship and an academic scholarship, uh, as well as uh, my parents covering the rest. And to be honest, that's more of a factor of me being an only child than um, my parents being super rich. There were just less mouths to feed. Um, <laughs> if there were three of me, I guarantee I would have graduated with debt. It was just that they made enough money to send one kid to college who had scholarships. Um, but then ever after that, uh, I racked up debt for all my subsequent education. Uh, I've had no such luck of <laughs> getting rid of it. So what I'd like to do now is talk about what we went into college thinking we might do and what we ended up doing. Um, Haley, you said that you just kind of took the first thing that you found essentially. Um, was that, and that, and you, you described that as more of a product of the available job market at the time in, what was that, 2013? Yeah, so um, I majored in philosophy with the intention of going to law school after graduation, um, but my parents basically said the job market is horrible and we're not helping you with law school, so we advise you to get a job and save money and make sure it's the right choice for you, and so that's what I did. I was interested in pursuing a career in HR just because I felt there's a lot of similarities with the law in some ways. Um, it's very rule-based and I think that you can use your career in HR and use your law degree and either work in labor and employment law, which is what I'm interested in, or um, work in-house as a chief human resources officer, which most of them I shouldn't say most of them, a lot of them have their law degree as well. Um, so for me, I originally thought I was just going to work for two years to save money for law school, um, but my salary did not allow me to only work for two years in HR and I actually really enjoyed it. And so when I made the decision to apply to law school in 2018, the job market was great um, for lawyers and everyone, and I wish I could say the same now, but I had a lot of money saved, and for me, I was not going to go unless I received a substantial um, academic scholarship. Um, I also am engaged, and I wanted to stay, obviously, near my fiance, um, who also has a lot of student debt from um, law school. He went to University of Notre Dame, um, which is 
obviously pricier than Loyola. Uh, maybe not so obvious, but it is. Um, and so I think that was an easy decision for me. I really wanted to stay in Chicago. I want to practice in Chicago and Loyola is a great school and it ended up giving me a very generous um, academic scholarship. Jim, a degree in music, that's, um, did you know that you wanted music and then what you wanted to do afterward before you went to Northwestern? Absolutely not. Um, I went to Northwestern in part because it's on the quarter system and that gave me more time to figure out what I wanted to do before I declared a major. You don't have to declare a major there until the end of your second year. And so I, because my parents are lawyers, I had considered the idea of law school, but when I, I was in high school during the, are we calling it the Great Recession still? I don't even know what counts as, <laughs> but yeah, I, so I was in high school when that started. And so my parents told me, don't do law school just to do law school because right now we don't foresee jobs for lawyers and we don't know when that's going to turn around. So don't make that your plan. And I did music because as a, somebody who was a very just like shy and awkward kid growing up, theater and music, uh, band, all those things were where I started to kind of find my tribe and felt really connected to people. And I took some music cognition classes and felt like, you know, I really like this. This seems like the thing. And I think over the course of college, I went through a lot of personal growth and even immediately after college. And I realized that I was um, much more of a people person than I had thought and kind of had that realization of, oh, I'm allowed to be friends with artists without having to be a professional artist myself. And that sounds really silly when you put it so shortly, but I think that's something that was, was hard for me to figure out at the time. And that definitely made me realize, okay, I should do some kind of profession where I can use those people skills more because that's something that matters to me more and I think I'll be good at, and hopefully I can, you know, at least afford to pay my rent at minimum. It didn't have to be law school, but I did some career counseling and law school is one of the things that turned up. And for a variety of reasons, it's the thing that made the most sense to me. And now one of my focus areas in law is mediation and alternative dispute resolution. That's definitely an area where I get to use those people skills. And so it, it is nice to have a sense of I might be making the most money that a lawyer can make, but I'll certainly be more secure. My wife is also working on her master's degree and she works for her school. So she's just able to minimize the debt that we're accruing. So, but we have that kind of like long-term plan of she's being supportive while I'm in school. I will be supportive while she's in school. We can come out, hopefully, minimizing debt uh, in you know the long-term five, seven-year plan and see where we go from there. I think I'll speak for uh, at least Jake and Haley, if not Jim as well, Radhika, when I say that, you know, people who are in the arts can be a little envious of people in the sciences because they just kind of esteem them a bit more and think like uh, it's going to lead to a, a more linear path um, after graduation that you go to school to study um, biochem and you graduate a biochemist. <clears throat> you know, Jake didn't graduate um, a communicator when he got a graduate, you know, when he finished his communication degree. I didn't graduate and a person literate in the English language with an English degree. Uh, you uh, went to school for the sciences. Was this something you went in knowing you wanted to do and did it lead to the linear path you may have expected? Uh, yeah, actually, I think that's not accurate about how a science degree works anymore. Maybe it w might have been back in the day. Nowadays, um, 
if you think about the kind of people that go into science, like I, I went in to undergrad thinking I was going to be a doctor. I came from an Indian family and Asian background and just being very bluntly honest, that is very important in Asian culture. Choosing a STEM field is pretty much the only option we have. So I grew up believing I wanted to be a doctor. I went to undergrad truly believing I was gonna be a pediatric surgeon. Like that's what I always thought I was gonna do. Um, I majored in molecular biology. It was the hardest few years of my life. I, I mean, there, I don't know why those classes are so hard in undergrad, but I guess it's good that they are because a lot of people that come out of them end up going to medical school. But graduating with a degree in biology doesn't mean anything. Like, what are you going to do with a degree in psychology and biology? Those are the degrees I have. They only help you get into grad school or medical school. Like, if someone really wanted to work long-term in a field where they had the opportunity for growth and salary increase, you have to go to graduate school, even with a science degree. So um, yeah, you may have the title, like I graduated with a degree in psychology, but that didn't make me a psychologist. I had to go to grad school. If you wanna be a proper psychologist, getting your master's in enough, you have to go on and get your PhD. So the science degrees may have carried some weight back in the day, but now all they're doing is setting you up for the next debt that you're going to have, which is grad school. I'll speak for myself, and I have a feeling I, all of us kind of feel similarly in that I could have skipped my undergraduate education and yeah. gone straight to law school and be no worse off whatsoever. And it's not as if my bachelor's degree was necessary to expand either my tactile education or just my general worldview. I didn't need to do that. I could have just gone straight to law school. And I've spoken with um, even students who, fellow law students who went straight from undergrad and didn't take time off. And they also echoed the same sentiment saying, I really didn't need to do this. You know, this was just kind of more general education. I chose a particular uh, major, but it was more just kind of general education. It wasn't a specific field, something that I can then take and then go use to further uh, advance or begin a career. You guys feel similarly? I'll, uh, I'd actually think, and, and again, just personally, I, you know, I, I would push back on that. I think, you know, I, I went into college at age 18 without any real clear vision and anybody who knew me in my time at Indiana would tell you um, that that was certainly the case, but, um, I think you know you have to you have to separate it a little bit. There's the classroom learning that happens during undergrad, and then there's the human growth and the human learning that happens during undergrad. And so you know it might be fair to say that um, what we're learning in law school, what I learned in undergrad, is having no direct relationship. You know, um, I'm a communications major. Like yeah, I did plenty of writing, I did plenty of public speaking, and and definitely honed those skills a little bit in undergrad. Um, and it's possible that maybe those didn't directly translate to law school. But, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively young compared to this group and compared to the law school general population. Um, but I can also tell you that those two years out of undergrad and the four, four and a half years that I spent in, in undergrad have given me far more personal growth, I think, than some of our counterparts that um, went straight from undergrad into law school. And so I think it might be true, you know, my communications 300 class at the University of Louisville may not have taught me anything that I'm using in law school, 
Um, but it's, it's not, it's more than just going through the motions. It's that personal growth, that personal development, and that, that sense of identity that you develop going through those motions that is imperative um, if you want to be a good law student. And without it, you, you simply couldn't function. When I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, a couple of the prompt questions, one of them was uh, discussing like the value of your degree. Um, and I feel that my my value was in a, a lot of things other than the academic success. Um, for me, worth was defined by things other than money. I met my best friends and started to become the person I was in college. And I learned a great deal about like the way the world works, which makes me an asset on any pub trivia team. But my family did not need to go into debt. I did not need to go into debt to get those lessons. You know, it would take us... 10 years eventually to pay off my undergrad. And I think now my undergrad tuition wise is pretty much paid off. Now we're just looking at interest and then, you know, then Kyle's tuition and interest and then my grad school tuition interest. Yes. Undergrad was valuable for me in a lot of ways. Like my best friends, I met them in undergrad and it defined me my, the early years of my adulthood. But I think that there are, other viable options to get those experiences without putting my family and I into like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. So those are interesting counterweights. So I think the, the question I would then go back to Jake, the let's call it whole person education um, that, that you uh, you'll feel you benefited from. Do you think that that element of your college experience could have also been gained at um, at work, you know, let's just say all things being equal, you graduated from high school, got a job doing something. Um, could those things, could though that develop, that personal development have occurred in a professional environment, similar to Radhika's point where you're not, um, even debt aside, even if you have the money, you're still spending a pretty hefty sum of money rather than yeah, with, earning money. Without question. Um, I mean, you know, I, I went out of state to Indiana. I mean, the, the price tag on that is, in hindsight, a little bit absurd. And again, I think that just demonstrates how little awareness I had as an 18-year-old of, of priorities of, of finance and understanding the value of money, the time value of money, all of these, these concepts that I've been able to sort of wrap my head around now, eight years later. Um, but I, you know, I think it's it's an apples and oranges question. I mean, you know, the you could also rephrase your question, Matt, to say, you know, what if what if we sent every eighteen year old off to boot camp for the military? Don't you think that would encourage personal growth um, and help people build their identity? And and unquestionably, yes. I mean, I think if at eighteen, I rather than going to undergrad for four and a half years, which I did, I had gone and joined the workforce immediately. Of course. Um, there would have been immediate personal growth and there would have been, um, you know, a, a, an identity built for me in a professional setting. But the part of your question that isn't put into words when you ask it is, can you quantify the personal growth that you went through in undergrad? And speaking for myself, you know, not to sound conceited, but I kind of like myself. I like who I am. I like my identity. I like who I've become. Um, and that has not always been the case. I have not always been proud of who I am and where I've come from and all of these things, but without everything that I did, I wouldn't be where I am. And I, and, you know, even knowing what I know now wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, and, you know, to Radhika's point, 
my, you know, I'm getting married in September, hopefully knock on wood, you know, half of the people that are standing up there with me are people that I've met since I started college. And, you know, without those experiences, I wouldn't have the life that I have now. So it's, it's almost an impossible idea to, it's the butterfly effect, you know, it would completely change who I am and completely change my life. And that's not something I would trade for anything. I'd like to first take a second to echo what both Jake and Radhika have said of that sense of, I wouldn't trade the personal growth that I got in undergrad for anything, but also I recognize there are other paths that could have led to similar growth. And who knows, I could spend the rest of my life on the shoulda, woulda, couldas there. Um, But I definitely have very little contact with anyone from my pre-college life outside of my family and the church I grew up in. And so I know that for me, I I couldn't imagine doing it differently. Um, But also a little bit to the point that was addressed earlier about kind of the value of the experience. Um, I think for me, part of what I got certainly is just the name value of my institution, both in that having something like Northwestern on your resume definitely gets people's attention, but also in terms of the networking that happened through that. Um, I got my externship this past fall in part because I knew someone who also went to Northwestern for undergrad and Loyola for law school and played trombone in the Northwestern marching band. And so certainly I, without having some merit to my legal writing and other things, I wouldn't have been able to have that externship, but having those connections that I've made and that kind of, if I don't know somebody, then I know somebody who knows somebody is certainly a valuable part of my degree. Could I have gotten that in other ways? Absolutely. But it's definitely a, a tangible way that I can see it continue to pay dividends. I straddle both Jake's and Radhika's world and similar to Jim. I will say though, I think I would sing a very different tune if I had gotten out of undergrad with debt. So when I graduated from college in 2005, um, first of all, 2005 was pretty rosy. You know, none of my friends were graduating like, oh my God, I'll never find a job. Things were pretty good. Um, So nobody was really kind of... um, singing the doom and gloom song. But when I graduated, my dad said I had six months to get out of the house and find and get out. Um, He said that was generous because he got six weeks. So I had uh, no debt, but still a gun to my head. I think if I'd had debt, I'd have been even more uh, apprehensive about what my future would hold. Uh, I will say that I don't think my English degree prepared me to do a single thing. Uh, I... And I'm curious to get Haley's thoughts as well in terms of going from a philosophy degree to HR. I, I just, I have a hard time wrapping my head around what my English degree did. I took classes that were really engaging. I took uh, classics of Western literature and um, literature of the Holocaust. And I read all kinds of great things and I had great discussions and I, and I loved what I did, but I felt like I could, I, I think about that, um, that line from Good Will Hunting you know, you spent $50,000 for your Harvard education. I got mine for a dollar fifty library card. You know, <laughs> I, I really feel like I probably could have done all the things that I did by just going to the library. Uh, and that- Would you have done those things though? Oh no, I'm exceedingly lazy. I, I spent my three years at Marist rowing, rowing, and rowing. I woke up every morning, uh, six, or Monday through Saturday, I woke up at 5.45 to go row. I then promptly went back to sleep and just kind of screwed around all day until I went to the gym in the evening and then repeated. I mean, I, I really didn't do much. I mean, we're uh, all capable of doing the things. 
obviously we're in law school. That means we're, we've been blessed with some level of like brain power, but what college devolves into when I think back to it is like a very expensive daycare where I was allowed to be away from home and my parents, I mean, constantly worried about me, but still felt comfortable in letting me go that to that place because there was some value that was going to result in it. And then I did whatever I wanted to partied, however I wanted to. And, um, the only, the only parameter I had was to come out of it with a degree. So these, it was like a very, very, very expensive way to make sure I wrote a few papers and read some books. And, and like, of course I could have done it on my own. I was smart. I was maybe smarter back then than I am now. I killed a lot of brain cells during that process. So pre brain cell death, I probably could have done it all on my own also, but I was never going to ever, ever, ever. I mean, just look at remote learning law school as an example. I'm much older and wiser now, and I'm still struggling to learn the way I need to. And I have a much better understanding of that now. So yes, we all could have done it, but I don't know that many people would have if we did not have the structure of college. So I guess then, and we'll get more to this later. Um, so I'll, I'll just make kind of make this comment. The idea that costs just keep going up and up and up and up, you know, and as we become the, the parent generation that will partially or fully contribute to our children's education, or we become the taxpayers where we're subsidizing fully funded, at least public educa- higher education. Are we content with, you know, yeah, they can just kind of go do whatever, you know, they can, it can be late teens, early twenties daycare. And the idea that you don't know what you're going to do. I remember reading um, about John Adams son going to RPI, his undergraduate before going to Harvard law school and how rigorous it was. And I remember reading about it and thinking I did not work a tenth of that hard in college. Like I, I just didn't work hard. And when I left, I didn't feel like I, I walked away with anything. Other, I think Jake, you're absolutely right. I definitely, being on the rowing team did um, develop me as a person, being in the college environment developed me as a person, being in the classroom developed me as a person, but I couldn't say, now I can do this. I can do this skill. Like I can walk out of law school saying, I can write a brief. I can write a memo. I could, go do moot court, or I could, you know, I could go argue in front of a appellate judge if I knew the subject matter. I could go do these, this list of things. I didn't feel like I could walk out of undergrad saying, I can now go accomplish these tasks. I'm kind of right back where I stood was, I think Radhika hit the nail on the head, at least for me, it was just, I can now do better at pub trivia than I did four, or could have done three years ago before I finished undergrad. I want to bring it back though, to just kind of college preparing you for the workforce. Uh, Haley, did you feel that, you know, that degree prepared you to go into the workforce, uh, particularly in HR? Um, so actually, University of Colorado Boulder's um, philosophy department is really strong. I think it's one of the more strong, at least for a public education in the country. Um, so I was very fortunate in that. I don't think it prepared me for HR, but I know that it's really helped me with law school. Um, It helped me with the LSAT. And then um, I just think philosophy, there's no real like right answer. And so a lot of my tests were essay 
tests where I had to basically argue why I think this way instead of the other way. And um, I mean, that's like really dumbing it down, but I think that's very similar to some of the testing formats that we've had to do in law school. And so I think that's really helped me with my legal career in terms of HR, not so much, but I do think that um, with HR, things are not, even though it's rule-based like the law, it's not black and white like the law. Um, so I think that if someone does something, um, you know, there's a lot of things that come into play. They're not just like a bad employee or a good employee. You really have to look at the person because it's, you're dealing with humans. And so I don't think, like to answer your question, I don't think it really helped with HR, but I, I do really think it is, was a good undergrad major for law school, which is what my intention was. Um, but I think it's important to note that no one in my family has ever um, gone to grad school. Um, my mom was the first person to graduate from college, actually, in her family. Um, so when I was applying to law school, my parents um, did not encourage me to do that because they have gotten by with um, just their college education. And to them, it's kind of silly because they think um, that having an advanced degree didn't, doesn't necessarily make you more successful and they look at the debt too um, and they're not sure if that's worth it. I think I could see their perspective because like I said, my mom was the first person in her family to go to college and she did not have a normal college experience like all of us had. Um, she wasn't partying, she was working full time while trying to put herself through college. So I think that, I don't know, to answer your question, I think when I told my dad what, that I was studying philosophy, he almost like lost it because he was like, why aren't you, why aren't you going to the business school? Um, that seems like a good way for you to use your education. And I think now that um, I'm obviously in law school and he had to get over that as well, um, I think that they're, they're seeing it from a different perspective. Um, and I... I, I enjoy that. I, I think that um, one of the good things about this conversation is that there's not a right or wrong viewpoint. And I think that everyone has their unique backgrounds. And I think with my personal relationship with my parents, I'm glad that they're seeing that um, their hard work didn't go to waste. I, I think you make a really good point about there's no right or wrong viewpoint on this. I think, you know, for every let's say poetry major who just didn't really do a whole lot and couldn't take that degree to go do something, there's gonna be someone who maybe didn't necessarily go become a poet laureate, but also went on to just like you, go in a different field, but still managed to capitalize on that degree and, and do something very valuable and productive. But the, there is something to be said for, you can't ignore the elephant in the room, which is tuition. So I, I think it's, it's interesting that none of us, so two, three people went to state school. So Jake, Haley, and Radhika, you all went to state schools, but they were all out of state, right? The first time, yeah. The second time I went to in-state state school. So yeah, makes, and when I went to Indiana, I was out of state. In Louisville, I was in state. So what makes that inter interesting is that it's, it's almost like private college in a way, based on the tuition jump that you pay um, from going from in-state to out-of-state tuition. Um, and do you guys think that there's a sort of kind of lumping in out of state tuition with private tuition? 
private schools, as you know, and out-of-state tuition charge a pretty significant premium over in-state tuition. Forgetting the fact of the sources of funding um, for why that's able to be possible, is it worth it? You know, if I compare a University of Illinois degree as an Illinois resident versus a Northwestern degree, let's say, is Northwestern's really worth that much more? I don't. Um, I think that my friends that went to very well-known, fancy, private schools are not more successful than my friends that went to U of I or Illinois State. Um, I, that's just my friend group, so I, I can't say in general, but um, I think that in-state tuition, it depends on the state, first of all. I think that Illinois is very fortunate that we have a lot of really great in-state um, colleges. That being said, though, you there's this piece of it, if you try to go on state, at least in Illinois, where, um, and I believe it's the same for um, California schools and Colorado schools, is that it's, they make it more competitive to go to in-state schools than for out-of-state, obviously, because they want the money. But I think that that's something we should discuss because I don't really feel like that's fair. If you have lived in a state for your entire life, your parents are paying all this money in taxes. And then because your child isn't the top 10% of their high school, like I went to an extremely competitive high school, public high school, um, and that it was gonna be virtually impossible for me, even though I had great grades, um, to go to U of I. And so, I think that is another part of the piece um, and it's unfortunate. And I think that's definitely something that needs to change. Yeah, I have asked myself this question so many times. I've stayed up all night asking myself this question um, because I, as an 18 year old, insist on going to University of Illinois, which is a state school, even though I, I was born and raised in Kentucky, I was a Kentucky resident. And I justified it that first year by getting a full ride scholarship. I got a like a full ride academic scholarship. And so I was like, it doesn't matter if I'm going out of state because it's free anyway. Um, I could have gotten four years full ride at U of L. I had that offer and I turned it down. It's the arrogance of youth. I mean, I really wish I could shake myself now and be like, you have no idea how long-term this is going to affect you, this decision. But I justified it with my scholarship. The second year, I only got half a scholarship. And by year three and four, I was paying full out-of-state tuition. Um, so it started out okay, but I was an idiot in undergrad and made some stupid choices and was not able to continue with the full-ride scholarship. And at that point... I almost wish my parents had intervened. I would not have reacted well at the time, but um, I wish they had been like, okay, now that you've lost your scholarship for out-of-state school, you should transfer to Louisville and finish in-state. Because as an adult, I realized how little value I got out of my actual education and degree from U of I um, versus how much debt I was in for so long. Yeah, and if, you know, not to, to plug our own show here, but if you are listening to this and you haven't yet listened to the episode that dropped, we're recording this on April 29th, it's dropping today. Um, I interviewed a bankruptcy attorney um, and we talked about student loan debt reform and, and how this, this topic is really picking up some traction. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, he, he said if, if he could sit down with every 18 year old across the country, who's considering college, considering, you know, a, a traditional undergraduate education, a trade school, anything, the, the number one conversation would be make this decision carefully because it will follow you forever. I mean, it's not, you know, maybe not the financials forever, but inevitably that sticks with you to, to backtrack a little bit. Um, Matt, your original question about in-state versus out-of-state, public versus private, um, in the ultimate legal answer, I think it depends. You know, I think for me, I went to Indiana and I, and I had this idea that I was going to be a business major, which if I had been capable of doing so, would have been a phenomenal path. Um, but, you know, I have peers that graduated from Indiana, the Kelly School of Business, very well respected, and are now living and working in New York, making very handsome salaries, working for big firms. Um, Alternatively, there are people like myself who graduated from uh, eventually from Louisville with a communications degree um, and came out of college making a quarter of what my peers were making. Um, you know, and, and I, I think there is some name value uh, inevitably. And I think we as Loyola students recognize that, you know, we're entering this job market competing with people that have UChicago and Northwestern on their resumes. And while we are just as capable, have worked just as hard, um, and in my experience, are, are often more well-respected by the companies for, for which we're working, there is that name value, there is that name recognition, and unfortunately, the reality is sometimes you just pay for that. I think um, there are a lot of kids that are 18 years old, um, 22 years old in law school, whose mom and dad write a, a blank check and say, we're going to pay for the name on your resume, and it's going to take you where you want to go, um, and I think to to pretend as though, and I'm not insinuating that we're pretending, but to um, pretend as though all college educations are equal um, sort of just ignores the reality a little bit. As a music major, I didn't go through this experience, but a lot of my peers did, where I think music students in particular go through a process of, they don't just pick a school based on the name of the school, they pick it based on the faculty. So you could argue about the value of getting a degree from Northwestern's uh, the Bean and School of Music or from uh, like Eastman in New York or from Berkeley or you could go to the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University or you could go to the University of North Texas but people aren't making the decisions based on that people are going to Northwestern because I want to study horn performance with Gail Williams I want to study conducting and get my master's from Dr. Mallory Thompson and I think that while the specificity is not necessarily true across fields, I do think that you have people who make decisions based on something specific about a program at a school. I know that there are Loyola students who are here because there's a specific program at LUC School of Law that drew them to this institution. And so I think if you want to look at it from a like the wisdom of an investment perspective, and I think that there is some value to that, I'm not trying to dodge that perspective, then you can certainly make arguments for or against public or private or specific institutions. But I would agree with Jake that ultimately it depends because there's a lot of nuance that you lose when you take that macro of view. And I have to say, I, I worked in HR for five years, but I mainly focus on recruiting and including at a major law firm and a very well-known bank. And I think that I think that the name of your undergraduate education will get you your first job, but I think after that, it doesn't really matter because 
how hard you work and who you are as a person matters more. And I also think that I saw from when I started in recruiting in 2013 until 2018, um, I think that people are becoming, and this is a good thing. I'm not being naive. I know that name brands, just like <laughs> fashion brands and school brands still matter. Um, but I do think that there is more awareness now than there was like 20 to 30 years ago of the fact that like I chose Loyola partially because I wanted to go to Loyola, but also because I could not afford to go to law school unless I got a scholarship. And so I don't have any qualms about saying that in an interview. And I would never advise a potential candidate to be scared to say that because that's just the reality. And so I think that more and more employers, especially employers that you want to actually work for, understand that, hey, maybe you did get into Northwestern, but you couldn't afford it. And so you went to Loyola because that was the most viable option for you. And I don't think that there's less than, you know, two, like two people that are in that situation. I think a lot more people than we realize are in those situations. So I think that's just something important that I wanted to know. One thing that comes to mind for me, and, and I know it's, it's on our, um, our big idea list of, of what we want to cover here, of, you know, how does this conversation that we have about student debt and the, you know, the cost of college, all these things, how does it affect where we go, what we do, et cetera? And I, I, I wrote this down because as soon as you said it, I, I thought of it. You know, you said there's less of an emphasis on the brand name necessarily of, of your institution. Um, and, and it immediately made me think of obviously my own personal background. So, um, you know, I, I compare myself to two generations. My grandfather graduated um, after serving in the military and got a degree in accounting from, from the University of Louisville um, and very regional focused back then. But I think for his generation, it was very much develop a skill, um, you know, go to college, develop a skill and earn a good living so you can support your family. And I, I contrast that to my father, um, you know, and, and I grew up in a house where, you know, he was, it was just me and him. Um, and he, he was a general contractor. I mean, he went out every day and worked with his hands to physically build things. Um, again, with that same idea that my grandfather had of, you know, this is what I'm good at, let's make a living. And I think now in, in our generation, and I say our grouping us together, there is a, a much more intense focus on that sense of self, that sense of identity, that sense of self-worth. Um, and so as it relates to this, you know, what decisions have we collectively postponed in our life? I mean, my grandma, I'm 25 years old, I turn 26 next month. My grandmother at 25, 26 um, had been married, widowed, had a child, and then remarried and was already pregnant with her second child. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think so much of this conversation, the nuance about it is, is generational and it is timely. Um, and us as millennials, I think there, like I said, there's this huge sense of, of finding ourselves and finding our purpose and finding our identities. And um, that takes so much time, but it, I think it's simultaneously uh, a blessing that we're get, we're, we're living in this time where that is such a priority um, as compared to, you know, my grandfather went to college. He said, okay, I'm good at numbers. I'm going to be an accountant. He was an accountant for 45 years or 50 years, and then he retired. You know, I, I just feel as though our experience gives us so much more opportunity to find ourselves. And that sort of brings it back to, I wouldn't trade my current situation, you know, finances included for anything. Well, that's a, that's a good point to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be discussing what college might look like in 20 years 
as the generation with the most college debt thinks about sending their kids to college. Stick around, we'll be right back. I want to bring it back. Uh, there were some things before the break that both Jim and Jake mentioned that I think dovetail really nicely. Jim, you were talking about how some uh, even high school students are so certain of what they want to do and they know with whom they want to study and are very, very particular, I guess, in, and, and see a very linear path for themselves. I think as law students, we're all type A personalities. Uh, and so we can certainly sympathize with that perspective. But I I would caution that I think that that's probably the exception and not the rule. I can think back to my uh, college classmates, like on the rowing team with me, all but one were kind of wayward. One of them uh, majored in accounting, you know, a very linear field, and he went to go become an accountant. Everybody else, one, I, uh, another English major went, ended up becoming a woodworker. One guy majored in business, but he was going to go work for his dad anyway. Um, another guy, went to go become a state police officer, which he didn't need to go to college for. You know, a lot of, uh, I, I think that to your point, Jim, the people who have that um, focus are to be commended and, and should have those opportunities. But I, I do think that that's the exception, not the rule. And I, I think that ties nicely into Jake's point about his conversation with the bankruptcy attorney and how he would like to advise 18 year olds about the gravity of the situation uh, which they're entering into. And so my question for, for all of us to discuss is, you know, can 18-year-olds can be trusted with such a decision? I know, Radhika, you were talking about, I know for me, at 18, I would have sold at least one of my kidneys, if not just gone on dialysis forever to get out of my parents' house. I would have done anything. And there was no number that you could attach to college to, that would then follow me forever to get me to say, no, I don't want to go. Um, do, do you guys all think that putting this on 18 year olds is, is fair to them? My situation was also highly colored and influenced by the fact that my parents were immigrants. So I think that there is a whole different dimension in there. As immigrants, they did not have a clear understanding of our American education system. It was only through like friends and their siblings' kids that they knew what happened. And everyone that they associated with had kids that went to fancy schools and became doctors. And then they were super rich because it was before 2008. So in their immigrant mind, they were like, well, we came to America, so our child should become a doctor, because that's the only way to be successful in this country. Um, so I had grown up with that influence. And while I wasn't an immigrant, I was born here, obviously, they were my parents. And also, I was 18. So I wanted to get out of my small town in Kentucky, I wanted to go um, live, you know, the big city, big college life. So at 18, I was so incapable of making a well-rounded decision and yet I did it and now I'm sitting here talking about how much student loan debt I am and 12-15 years later. So in my experience age-wise I was not prepared to make that decision and the fact that I had immigrant parents put me at an even bigger disadvantage because no one in my immediate 
life was able to give me really clear and good guidance. Now, when it comes to my children, I will, I, we will discuss these things long and hard for years before it comes to a head, especially the whole in-state, out-of-state. Like, I want my kids to understand exactly what they're signing up for and what it means in the long run. My parents couldn't have had those conversations with me because they came from a foreign country. So I think that, like, um, yeah, my cultural background and my age both influenced me making what I now feel wasn't the best decision. Do you think that there was anything that you could have, like, if you were to talk to yourself even now, mm-hmm. you know, the 30-year-old Radhika is talking to 18-year-old Radhika, is there anything that you could have said to that 18-year-old to, to drive home the importance of this? Yeah, I think I could have. I think I could have told myself that Louisville is still two hours away. So you'll still be away from your parents. It's still a city. You'll still meet a huge variety of people and you'll still get as much of an education as you put in to U of I. You know, those things aren't going to change. Really, the most effective thing would be to go back to my 18-year-old self now and be like, you, this is how much student loan your debt you're in, and you paid off your tuition half a decade ago, and now you're just paying interest still to this point. That, I think, would have made a difference. I hope, at least, um, it would have made a difference, but no one was really talking to me like that honestly it was all about achieving becoming a doctor all your cousins went to fancy schools so if you get a scholarship you can go to a fancy school um it was not the right kind of discussions i think for me at the time and i think it's important to to note that you know not every conversation can work the same way i guess you know a 30 year old radica could say something to 18 year old radica that would work for, for you, but that wouldn't work on 18-year-old Matt, let's say. Of course, of course. So like when I got out of my graduate degree uh, with debt, I was making my student loan payments and they switched um, loan service providers um, and they sent me some more paperwork and I started looking and reading at something and I had no problem uh, paying it, but I was looking at the rate and I, even at, and I went into school at 25. And even then I wasn't really paying attention because I wanted this degree so badly. Mm-hmm. And once I looked at the rate of 7.9%, damn, that's high. And so then I started um, digging into it some more and then I called and I ran the math. I said, can you confirm that this is right? Am I paying $10 every single day in interest? I said, yes. One more time, $10 a day in interest? And he said, yes. And so that for me, and I had an opportunity at that time to just wipe it all out, to get just totally wipe out my debt. And so I took it. Um, but at, at the same time, it was, for me, the conversation was just putting it in raw dollars. If you said, you will pay $10 every single day, just in interest. That for me, put me over the hump of, okay, now this is a dumb decision. But if you just said, oh, you won't be able to get married for a longer period of time, or you won't be able to buy a house. Oh, I don't care about those things. You know. 18 year old me or even 25 year old me that's that's not the case so jake i'm interested in your perspective too like talking to this bankruptcy attorney did he make any point of that like this is just this is just too great a an ask of 18 year olds to truly appreciate this uh, the gravity and the implications of their decision yeah i mean we we definitely discussed that and i think that's why um his his whole focus when it comes to young people, especially when it comes to young people filing bankruptcy, is establishing this financial literacy. Um, you know, just s- 
So um, I just finished an, an article about this topic and specifically about um, discharging student loan debts and bankruptcy. Um, and in my research, some of these numbers that, that come out are just staggering. So, you know, for example, 44 million Americans have outstanding current loan debts, student loan debts today. Um, so, you know, one of every 100 people or one of every 90 people, give or take, um, have outstanding student loan debts. The, the idea that, you know, to your point, Matt, so if somebody told me at 18, um, hey, you're going to pay $10 a day every day until this, this debt is paid off. Um, I think at 18, the average 18 year old would say, well, whatever, what's $10 a day, you know, hopefully when I'm old and rich and whatever, $10, you know, just in our dream worlds, $10 is insignificant. And then I think you, you sort of have to break it down a little bit more. So for example, President Trump just proposed this plan um, where he would like every American with student loan debts to pay flat 12.5% of their income every month until their student loan debt is gone. Um, I think the, the better way to explain that is sort of that old mythology about how do you explain taxes to a kid? Um, you know, so, hey, I'm going to give you a dollar. This is your dollar. You worked for this dollar. Now give me 35% of that dollar back. Give me 35 cents back and you can keep 65 cents. Um, I think in hindsight, to your point, Matt, these are really easy concepts for us to understand now that we have worked and we've seen our taxes withdrawn and we've paid down our debts and we've paid rent and all these things. At 18, you know, I, I was working at 18. I was paying my own for my own car insurance and I was paying for gas and I was, you know, all these things. And I still had no concept of the cost of college. I mean, it's, it's an astronomical number that has, you have no grasp on reality at 18. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think to, to directly answer your question, and I apologize that it took me 90 seconds, <laughs> it's, it is absolutely impossible for the average 18 year old to say, okay, you know, like Radhika, I understand that there's a 15 or $20,000 difference per year between Louisville and U of I, or for me, Louisville and um, Indiana, I understand that that $15,000 a year is going to take me, you know, 15 years to pay off. I understand that I'm going to postpone my, my marriage, my purchasing of a house, my having children. I mean, those are impossible concepts to understand at 18 when your sole focus is, you know, again, speaking for the average 18 year old, um, where's my next beer coming from? What am I doing this weekend with my friends and how quickly can I move out of my parents' house or wherever I'm currently living. Matt T, the question that you initially asked, I'd also say, um, you made the point that the teenagers who have the, the drive to know what they want to do with that sort of specificity going into college are the exception. And I think I agree with that. But I also think that even the teenagers who have that kind of perspective when they start can change so much. I had friends who dropped out of the music program at Northwestern. I have friends who dropped out of the pre-med track at Northwestern because they came in with a lot of certainty and whether it was through something that happened in that field of study that made them realize I don't want to do this or something outside of that, like a realization of, Oh, I don't have anything against the medical field, but I think I would find a better experience for me doing this other thing. And so I think that, even if teenagers have the capacity, which I think I agree that most cannot conceive of that barring very exceptional exposure to those ideas and having to, to age and mature faster than we should expect of children, essentially. Um, most people can't make that decision. And I don't think that's 
in any way like insulting to teenagers to say that I think that I you know I was not a developed person until probably in the you know a few years out of undergrad when I really like coalesced into the person I am and I think that's true of a lot of people. Jim you, you raised an interesting point about um, people changing their minds and it, it got me thinking about either uh, conditional grants conditional scholarships or um, uh, or loans like I thought about um, the, or the military academies. Uh, I was briefly considering it myself, and I learned, I knew that I know that um, like at Annapolis, if you leave before you graduate, you know you're there and you're not paying anything. Like you're, it's completely free. Um, if you leave, you now owe whatever they assign a dollar amount to the value of whatever they perceive their education to be. Similarly to the question of are we asking too much of eighteen year olds to be so certain and aware of their future are, you know, are we asking too much of them when we say, you can't change your mind, you know, college needs to be for you. Once you go down this path, you are stuck with this debt. Uh, and if you change your mind, too bad. <laughs> like, this will still follow you. That's, that's a lot. Well, I think Matt, you, you know, the answer, my answer to your question would be another question which is, you know, why, why collectively, societally, do we put so much emphasis on an undergraduate education? Um, and, and one of the, the political policies that I found most interesting, and, and, you know, not to discuss the viability of it necessarily, but, um, you know, I think if, if people are Bernie Sanders supporters, their idea is all college should be free. And I definitely think there's some merit to that conversation, you know, regardless of whether or not you how you feel about it. Um, it's certainly an interesting idea given that there's one, I think it's $1.7 trillion of outstanding student loan debt in America right now. Um, but I think something that is more interesting to me personally is why can't somebody who's graduating from high school go get a trade degree for free? So, you know, maybe the liberal arts path is not correct for everybody or, you know, even the Naval Academy, you know, why am I going and spending four years in the classroom learning English literature like you did, Matt, if I'm going to become a commander on a, on a naval cruiser. Um, similarly, if I'm graduating from high school and I want to learn how to be a coder or I want to learn how to be a carpenter or an electrician um, and develop those tactile skills, uh, why is that not something that's made available to everybody the same way that a public high school education is? When I lived in San Diego, I, I ran a startup, a uh, tech startup, and so I had uh, enough contacts in the tech community and was familiar enough with that world. That world is starting to transition into the mindset of, and then from the employer's perspective of, yeah, I really don't care if you went to college or not. Can you do the work? Mm -hmm. And so a, a number of your newer, um, your newer hires are going straight from high school to taking, let's say five classes. I want to know, you know, I know how to do, I took two classes in C-sharp, two classes in Python, one class on Ruby on Rails, and now I feel qualified to go be this software developer at this smaller company. Um, and then build their skill set, and then maybe they move up to a bigger company and build their skill set and move up to a bigger company. But they are, that field is moving away from that. And I, I, quite frankly, I hope you're right. So I'll talk about myself. I'm, <clears throat> I'm a new parent. My wife and I have often spoken of we will not send our kid or kids to college if they don't have a linear path in mind because we both graduated 
um, kind of right back where we started. Okay, now what? You know, there was the tacit expectation for us from our family of you will go to college. Um, but beyond that, there was nothing, you know, Radhika, you had even higher expectations of you will be a doctor. <laughs> for Kelly and I, it was just, you will be a college graduate, which quite frankly, in this day and age is not a huge accomplishment. It's, it's, it's bare, you know, as much as there aren't as many people who might like to go to college uh, in the United States, it's, it's still not this monstrous feat that it may have been some time ago when going to college was uh, a very elite pursuit, a very rig uh, academically rigorous pursuit. Uh, and so for us, when we look at our son, he needs to come to tell us, what do you want to go do with this degree? What do you want to go study? If you just simply want to go to college, look, if it were free, sure, why the hell not? If it were a hundred bucks, why not? But the fact is it's just so costly, we're not willing to spend that much money. And so that's where this value of what does it do for me versus what does it cost? And these two value statements are kind of bumping into each other. And you just, because the dollar amount is just so high, it can't be ignored anymore. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because Matt, you mentioned that it used to be, um, I guess like more highly regarded because it wasn't expected. Um, but then I think about it and I personally, again, this is my personal experience, so I'm not saying this is true of everyone, but none of my friends like own a home or, ha or even if they have children, the few that do, they still don't own a home. Whereas what, like we discussed earlier, my parents at the age of my age, um, 29, had two kids, they owned a home and they had very little student debt. And like I said, my mom was the first person in her family to go to college. And I just don't understand why now college is expected of basically everyone, even though I think it's clear from this conversation that we don't think it's been necessary for our careers, but then like I couldn't buy a home right now if like my life depended on it. And I don't know really like that many people that can. And um, I definitely couldn't have two or three kids and be able to provide for them. And so I think that's kind of more the issue is like, why is the cost so much higher now than when my parents went to school like 35 years ago, um, even though it was, it was more rare to go to college, I guess, back then than now. I don't know. I just think that's something that we should talk about because I think that the cost now versus back then is the real issue. And it's the stereotype that millennials are lazy and they're living with their families and they're living with their parents. I just find that kind of funny because it's like my dad, similar to your dad, Matt, was like, oh, I only was able to live at home for a month. So you got six months, Haley. And I think that, you know, regardless of that, more people are living at home now because they can't afford to work, pay off their student loans and do everything else. And so I think it's inhibiting millennials and like younger generations from being able to be independent and um, have the life that they want. And for women, especially, there's like a time clock on like when we can have children. Um, and so I think that, I don't know, I just think that's something that we should discuss as a group, because I think that's definitely part of the problem. It's like, um, the how costly it is now versus 30 years ago is really not only contributing to our education and whether it's viable or not, but also everything else that we want to do. 
as young adults with the rest of our lives. Yeah. So I'll, I won't I won't say anything more than to to ground Haley's comments in that the cost of tuition at college, uh, and this is kind of a distillation average of public and private in-state. Cost of college has, uh, compared to the rate of inflation, tripled. So it is three, the cost of tuition over the last 20 years has grown three times as fast as the rate of inflation. And there's just no way that wages can keep up with that. Yeah, and, and Matt, to uh, sort of piggyback on what you're saying, um, just because of my familiar, familiarity with this topic based on my research, just to, to give real quantifiable numbers, the cost of college since 1980 has, has increased at about 2.6% per year. Um, and over that same time frame, wages have only increased about 0.3% per year. So, you know, Haley, when you, when you talk about um, this bad rap that millennials get, I think that that really hits the nail on the head. Um, and we all sort of live through that. I mean, you know, these numbers that are put on the cost of college, especially as compared to, um, you know, entry level salaries remaining relatively the same, it, it's almost a joke. And I think um, our generation, you know, we're, we're the $12 on avocado toast generation, but what's lost in that, in that very somewhat grounded comment is, is the reality that, you know, these numbers are not equal to what they used to be. And it's not equitable to compare these two generations because the realities just aren't the same. I think the, the other half of that issue is because these costs are so astronomical and they're so impossible for, like we discussed, in, impossible for an 18 year old to understand, you're seeing default rates on these loans of 11%. So 11% of people that have student loan debt can't afford to pay off those student loans. And so you know, Matt, you presented this question of, is college worth it? And would we send our children to college? You know, as I, I don't gamble, but if you said, hey, your kid's got a one in 11 or uh, an 11 in 100 chance of defaulting on his or her loan after college, I would say absolutely not. I mean, that's like the analogy of, you know, you've got a bad headache, there's 100 pills in the bottle, and 11 will kill you and 89 will fix your headache. Will you take a pill? I mean, it's, it's, insane to think that one in 10 people can't afford to pay off their student loans. And yet simultaneously, not having a college degree is a barrier in almost any job field that isn't a STEM field. Um, without a college degree, your resume just gets passed over and you're not even considered for a job that can't, that even if you get, won't help you pay off your student loans. Do you guys agree with the Thing that gets thrown around that nowadays a bachelor's degree is equivalent of a high school degree in the back in the day and a master's degree is equivalent of a grad uh, undergrad degree nowadays yeah I, I don't um, I don't agree with that I think it is fair simultaneously to believe as I do that the value of an undergraduate education is not once what it was but I don't agree that um, the value of, of a high school education say 30 years ago is equal to a college education now. I think, um, you know, there is still a prohibitive barrier of entering a lot of job fields um, and going to pursue higher education, things like that, where without an undergraduate degree, that's just quite literally not an option um, versus, you know, a high school education, you are required by law to be there all the way through your sophomore or junior year, depending on, you know, where your birthday falls in the year. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that 
it's fair to equate them because I think it's a little bit of apples and oranges, but um, there's no question that the value of a college education is not what it once was. Our parents, or at least my parents, never graduated from high school or college really with a bad job market um, or not even close to the types of job markets that we've had to deal with. Whereas me and Radhika um, and, you know, and Matt mentioned that in 2005, things were a lot better, but at least for Radhika and I, this is twice now where we're graduating with a recession and unfortunately, likely a similar, maybe not as severe, hopefully recession where the job market is horrible. So it's not only that the pay is not great now, but it's going to be twice now where we have graduated, where it's difficult for us to even find a job. Um, part of the reason I brought up that I took the first job I was given is because some of my friends who, again, went to a college, a well-regarded public college, it took them over a year to find any job. And so they were so, one of my friends is still in the same job that she started with because she's still so scared. Um, and now her paranoia is coming, becoming a reality um, of how long it took her to get a job to begin with. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because I think that it will be interesting. Um, Matt mentioned that he has a child and when we have children, if we choose to do that, I think that our perspective is going to be very, very different than our parents because we have had to deal with um, some of us twice now having to pay a lot of money for our education and then graduating. And unlike our parents where the opportunities were pretty much endless and our parents were able to buy cars and houses and have children, we're sitting on our hands and can't even find a job for any amount of money. So I just think that is really going to change um, how we treat education for our children and probably how our children view education as well. The fact that Haley and I have graduated into a recession twice, I don't know if this is true for Haley, but for me, it definitely affected my credit score also. My ability to pay um, student loans heavily affected my credit score, um, which affects everything in this country. Everything is so tied into your ability to make financial payments on time. And when I was 22, I obviously didn't value my credit score the way I do now. I, at age 31, do not see the light at the end of the tunnel as far as home ownership. Like I, I genuinely believe I will never be able to own a home. And it's very disheartening. And it's because I graduated twice into a recession, which entailed messing up my credit score, which entailed incurring massive amounts of debt, which incurred, which entailed having a very depleted job market. And all of that has, you know, created this cluster of like financial desolation, even though I am probably one of the most educated people I know. Haley, you, you mentioned something uh, a few moments ago about, we were talking about the the value and uh, a dollar amount and comparing our parents to ourselves and the decisions that then we will make uh, as, a, as a generation of parents uh, bringing kids into the college atmosphere. I think about how a college education has changed over time. So when I was at my graduate school in San Diego State, there was the uh, gym with a rock wall and there was also the aquaplex with like, I don't know, three different kinds of pools. So I guess my question is, is, is the tuition increase worth it? Are all these extra services that some students are getting worth it? And I'll 
I, I will point the spotlight at Loyola, at our law school. So I can tell you that uh, in, in the wake of the 2008 recession, um, law schools faced serious criticism. And as a result, the American Bar Association required these 509 reports to be published. Uh, and that looks at statistics based on um, bar pass rates, as well as tuition, as well as uh, admittance rates and a number of other statistics. Looking at Loyola's, you can see from 2011 to today, you can see that from 2011 to today, tuition has increased 29%. If we were to look at McDonald's and say, how has your pro, if they increased cost 29% over the last eight years, we, well, how has your product improved? It hasn't. The product is essential or changed, I should say, not necessarily improved, but how has the product changed? It hasn't. Okay. Have costs gone up? Well, that would be essentially for us, that's just really the cost of uh, faculty, I mean, or I don't know what the, the school might be paying for the building, but it's really just probably faculty. So if they're not paying their faculty more and their staff more, then they're just clearing bigger margins. What appears to be a lockstep to a year over year increase in tuition without a product change. You know, we also talked about name recognition uh, and there's something to the idea of price recognition. And I know that there are some schools um, uh, that I uh, have slashed our tuition to get away from essentially pricing recognition uh, that they you know, no longer want to see a $50,000 sticker price to then automatically connote, oh, it must be you know, that, that much value. I guess my question is, is there anything to the idea that a year over year tuition increase is warranted? Or do we think that there's something else going on? I think that um, the rent um, that they're probably paying for the building has definitely increased. And that's another thing. Uh, but to answer your question, um, I personally don't think so. I think that um, all schools, whether it be undergraduate education or um, graduate education, all institutions, um, I don't know what the rules are for public versus private. Loyal is the first private school I've ever attended. Um, but I think that when you start with the tuition, it should not change <laughs> until you're done with that school. Like the fact that it changes every year. And I just, I don't, I don't really understand that because to your point, Matt, I don't really see changes. And I think it's, I studied those forms, by the way, when I was applying to um, law school, I looked at those forms like constantly and I'm so glad that those were required and it's a little um, unsettling that they weren't beforehand, but I don't know. I think maybe before students attend law school, they need to have, or any form of education, um, undergrad as well, I think maybe it would help to really see those numbers and look at those forms and like really understand where their money is going to, just like any other investment. Like you wouldn't invest in a property or you wouldn't invest in like a stock or bond unless you really had the whole picture. And I think that that's really necessary for an education as well. So I don't know if that answered your question, but if I had a child, that's what I would advise them to do. I also feel like there should be a more itemized, like if you ever look at your um, bill for school, it gives you a breakdown of what you're paying for each. So insurance, transportation, health services, blah, blah, blah. And then undergrad, I feel like that breakdown is even more so than in law school. So you're paying, like um, Matt mentioned, for recreational facilities and all this stuff. So I know if you pay the tuition, you have your student ID, you are 
able to access those things and that's as a default. I think it may be more fair to give an itemized like checklist where you're physically saying, I do want to pay for this. I do want to take advantage of this. I don't know if that's realistic, but like, I know that would, that would have reduced like probably five to $7,000 a semester for me in, in undergrad, at least when I think back to all the extra things I was paying for that I wasn't using. So I think that universities and institutions add a lot of buried costs in there. And I think it's deliberate. I think, I do think that they expect a lot of people not to dispute those extra, you know, three, four hundred dollars here, five, six hundred dollars here, which accumulates to five, six thousand dollars a semester sometimes. Um, so I don't think that universities are trying to um, operate with like, oh, like an open light policy. Like I don't, I, I do think that they try to hide things from us. And that may be like very cynical, but I, it's, it's because like I've said, I've had so much experience in higher education now because of all these stupid degrees that I have. Just kidding. I take that back. They're not stupid. But um, I do feel taken advantage of as a consumer of education in America. I think it will be interesting to see what happens kind of um, to both Matt and Radhika's point. If we do continue to to be remote for um, uh, for all institutions, at least in the United States, next semester as well, like how are they going to be able to justify that same tuition? Because we're not using the facilities. We're not, using um, we're not like for me, it's like, I didn't even have a printer. So I had to buy a printer. Um, exactly. Like for, at Loyola, um, you get a discounted venture pass, but nobody's going anywhere um, unless they really need to. And so for me, I expect if we are going remote next semester, I expect that my tuition should be lowered because that's what's fair. I'm not using the facilities. I'm not using the bathrooms. I'm not using the printer. I'm not using the library. Health services, mental health services. So that's exactly. A good, no that's student a good question, organizations. Though. You expect it because you'd see it as the right thing to do. But do you actually think it will happen? And I'm and not necessarily pinpoint at Loyola, but do you think colleges will say, well, you're not here to use the pool, so we're going to give you back X amount of dollars. Do you, do you think that that will happen? I think that if that doesn't happen, I'm interested to see the backlash that educational institutions in America get. And then even more so than just shaming, um, I am interested to see the legal perspective of that once this is all over. Because that's like saying, Matt, I will give you well, this is really dumbing it down in this example, but I will give you a sandwich, but let me just, you know, take away the lettuce. Let me take away the tomato. Let me take away the meat or whatever. And let me just, and then it just, it becomes a, two pieces of bread instead of a sandwich. Like that's how I view it. Maybe like, I understand that the point of an education is to be educated by the professors um, and to learn something, but I think people would be lying if they said that they're getting the same amount of education and learning experience when they're staring at a screen and then, oh, my professor's internet went out or this happened or whatever. It's not the same. And that's just a fact. It's just not the same. I do know of a number of colleges returning uh, even this uh, a partial refund for this semester for food. So like if you had a, if you were an undergraduate and you had your dining hall, um, that would, they would refund. 
I feel like that's an easier thing to do though. First of all, I think you're right about, you know, facing any backlash. Like I'm not even eating the food, please give me my money back. I think that's, they saw the writing on the wall for that. Number one, number two, it's easy to do that because they can just stop buying the food and therefore that money just gets deferred back to the students. And so that's easy to do. I think it's a lot harder to say, well, we don't need, you know, all these other things anymore so we can just refund the money. It is also worth noting though that, you know, all of the support staff for a university, if they're not needed and students get their tuition refunded, they're now out of a job. If no, if we're, you're, I think you, either you or Radhika said, I'm not there at school to use the bathrooms anymore. Therefore, we don't need someone to come and clean them anymore. Well, now that person's out of a job. And so what, you know, are we okay with continuing to subsidize that person's lifestyle? Which is where the federal but, government has to step in, I think. Um, right, which is reasonable. But, and we don't want to get off on a, on a, a COVID-19. Uh, God knows we, we would be the umpteenth thousandth uh, podcast to start talking about uh, yeah. COVID-19 fallout. I have um, a thing um, pulling back to the discussion that was had earlier about just like amenities and things like that. It was kind of in your original question. And I think Radhika touched on this as well. In the first season of the podcast Revisionist History, they did a little mini segment on different issues in funding for education. And I think it was the fifth episode where they compared two different universities. I want to say it was Vassar and uh, Bodwin, maybe. And the different way, like different ways in which the institutions prioritized those sorts of amenities and experiences. And part of the reason for having nice stuff, like having like a welcome week surf and turf night is because you need things to draw in students who are capable of paying full tuition in order to be able to fund need-based scholarships. Even if their money is not like directly funding those, if it means they're paying for things the school has, then the endowment or whatever goes toward those needs-based scholarships. And that becomes a tightrope when you have to do enough stuff to bring people in, but then that those things cost money and it's a big balancing act and different institutions handle that in different ways. But to a certain extent, like the amount of those amenities can be exaggerated. And certainly a lot of those things aren't necessary or even really what people want out of their college experience. Sometimes it can be an idea of, well, this is what the kids want. Let's, let's give them, you know, put a bunch of Xboxes in the student center and things like that that become less important but it is a big balancing act for all of these funding things. And I think it also goes to the point that you made, Matt, about you have support staff, you have all these other things that there's a lot of different layers for the funding of an institution. And so while it is easy for us in the student position to say we shouldn't be paying such and such thing. And I think there's, there's merit to a discussion about should we be paying less, some less money based on a lower quality of education when we were supposed to be, we signed up for three years of in-class experience. Um, it also has a lot of ramifications on support staff and funding for need-based scholarships and other students' experience in a way that it's hard for us not having that information about our own institution, never mind about all the institutions all over the country, as to how they should be handling this particular crisis. That's, that's well said. Uh, and it's tough. It's a, it's a balancing act, and it's not a. Uh, they're not decisions that I envy. Um, Haley, you touched on something that I'm. I think is a nice segue to uh, the denouement of our conversation today, uh, in terms of things that we tactile things that we could propose uh, as far as ways to 
reconsider higher education going forward. You, you, you kind of talked about, I guess, in a way of required disclosures. You know, we talked about the ABA required disclosures for law schools. If undergraduate institutions had something similar, um, be they job outcomes, where money goes, uh, those kinds of required disclosures. So uh, my question for, for us is, would that have made a difference though? To come back to this whole idea of like being 18, I gotta get out of the house. Uh, like you, Haley, I studied religiously those ABA 509 reports. I crossed some schools off my list to apply to law schools. Like you, you know, you only have two out of three of your graduates employed as lawyers. Uh, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna waste my time. Would this kind of information for your average 18 year old make or break uh, a college education, do you guys think? Would it change my mind as an 18 year old Haley? No, but going back to my point earlier, would it change my future child's mind knowing that both of um, his or her parents had to graduate in two recessions and have a lot of student debt? Maybe, because that's my point is like, I think that our children, because of us and our experiences will look at their education differently. Maybe I'm being too idealistic there, but I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be real and just say that my perspective and my partner's perspective on education is a lot different than my parents. And again, my mom was the first to go to college, she had to work. I'm not saying she had like some breezy experience, but she still was able to find a job and she still was able to have a home and children. And so I'm almost 30 and I can't, to Radhika's point, I don't know when that's going to happen to me. And so I think that, no, like my, my 18 year old self, probably that wouldn't have made a difference, but I think in the future it could, it really could. I plan on having these conversations with my children in a much more like end goal kind of context. Like, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I think back to the conversations I had with my parents and it was like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. So this is what I have to do. But I think with my children, what I want to do differently is go more step by step and try to give examples of the consequences of their decisions um, in a very colorful way based on my own life. And I think that's where the difference might happen. Um, my parents could not give me any examples of how any of this worked. It was just based on what they'd heard. But Kai, my husband and I are gonna be able to give our children a much more firsthand account of what we went through and how it ultimately affected us. So I think that being like very upfront with our children and not, being honest about what our objectives are. I think that's big also because your kids will always put like resist when they feel like you're trying to manipulate them into a decision. So I, th I think what we have to do is be really honest about what our goals of these conversations are. And I'm going to start them. Your mother and father graduated twice into a recession and this is how it affected us and have those conversations early and often and as honest, honestly as possible. And hopefully that will give my 18 year old child much more information and power than I had as an 18 year old. I think those are the right conversations to have. I think that those are going to occur organically. I, I do think that you guys are both right that 20 years from now or 18 years from now, those conversations are inevitable that there's just no way that we can divorce ourselves from our own history and our experiences of graduating into recessions, of dealing with uh, significant debt. And we would just 
casually say, please go pursue college, pursue what you like, you know, do whatever you want. I just don't see that that, whether that mindset uh, detonates the current higher education business model, you know, we all know. And it is, it is a business model and it's, it's wild to think about. The, I, there's no other business in the world where someone is beating down your door to hand you $150,000 and you can say, no, we're full up. Sorry, you can't come in. I and mean, that's just insane. I do think it's, it's worth noting though, you know, we're talking about 20 years from now, however long it is when our children are going to college. Um, I do think it's important to acknowledge that while we will have different conversations with our children than our parents had with us, I think it's equally important to acknowledge that the conversation around college affordability, the cost of college, et cetera, will be different inevitably. Um, I think we're sort of getting to this boiling point on this issue in America, where collectively society, politicians, um, institutions are all realizing that the current system as it stands isn't sustainable, especially with this two and a half percent annual growth model that we're on. And I think um, something's got to give, you know, whether it's for the good of all people or for the good of the institution, either way, um, the conversation will be different. And while it's, it's easy to say, this is what I would say to my kids if they were going to school today, um, there's no way of knowing. And I don't mean to, you know, say it's impossible to have this conversation because that's the whole point of this round table. But I think it is important to acknowledge that the landscape will be completely different no matter what. I, I think you're right. I hope you're right. The only caveat is though that you can't, get, it was, as we've all admitted, you can't get around having a college degree. With a handful of exceptions, this is some, this is a must-have, and it's just you know if you similar to health insurance, if your option is nothing or health insurance, okay, I guess I'll pay whatever the bill is. Like I just I have to have this. I have to have this college education. Whatever you're charging, I will pay. I will do my best to try and mitigate those costs with a scholarship or a grant or go to a state school over a private school. But at the end of the day, I am going to have to eat some kind of cost. And if a business recognizes such incessant demand, they can get away with charging whatever they want. And I, I, I do think that that is where, as our generation starts to take more active role in government leadership, I think only then will you start to see any real sea change happening. Otherwise, it'll, it'll be your Bernie bros nibbling at the fringe to try and get something to happen rather than actually making any kind of substantive change. Last question that I, I want to post to you, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, uh, and this is just a kind of quick going around. Would you pay for your kids to attend a private school, to attend a state school, but not know what uh, the student wanted to do, or to study a nonlinear field? Yeah, I think, um, again, to be a, a real legal scholar here, my answer is it depends. Um, you know, for example, if I were my dad um, and I knew myself at 18 and, and 18-year-old Jake came to me, current Jake, and said, I'm going to go to a private school. I'm going to study poetry, and um, it's going to cost me $50,000 a year. My answer to that child would be, no, you're not. Um, you need some tactile skills. You need to um, build some self-identity, and you need to learn how to learn before you're going to go study something in the abstract. In that same vein, you know, if my kid is somebody like the kid that Jim described earlier, who's, who comes to me and says, hey, 
I'm going to go to Northwestern. It's going to cost me 50 grand, but this is what I'm going to study. I'm going to be a master of it. Um, and you know, I'm going to study with this person. I would say, okay, that's, that seems more plausible to me. Um, ultimately though, I think this question is more of a reflection on myself. Um, and I think, you know, when I graduated from Louisville, one of the main reasons I'm in law school is I knew for a fact that my communications degree from Louisville was not going to provide me the life that I wanted. And part of the life that I want in, and for my family is to be able to say to my kids, I busted my ass, um, forgive my language for however many years between now and when my children are ready to go to college to provide you an opportunity to pursue what you're interested in, pursue something you're passionate about. Um, don't waste it. Don't, don't take what I've done for granted and um, not throw it away because, you know, Matt, you studied um, one of these nonlinear degrees and clearly it's, it's paid off for you in some respect. Um, I, I think it's, it's no longer a, a blanket. Of course, you can go to college and study whatever you want. Um, for me, it's much more of a let's build a plan and make sure that you're ready for it before we go do it. Um, I think for me, like I mentioned earlier, I think that my perspective is going to be very different and my partner's is. So if we do have children and have the opportunity to do that, I think that I would like them to know like all of the consequences. And I think kind of the topic that we discussed earlier, um, right before this is I like there's states like Wisconsin and Minnesota, there's reciprocity for in-state tuition. Um, there's states like Missouri um, where it's fairly easy to get in-state tuition at Mizzou as long as you get a driver's license, Missouri driver's license, um, work there for a summer, pay taxes, and the government there kind of looks at it like a good thing. And so I think I'm hoping that while I don't think the value or the need for college education will change to your point, Matt, I think that families are going to start valuing those options, those states that um, offer those opportunities instead of saying, oh, my child has to go to Harvard because it's Harvard. Um, and so I think for me, that is going to be how I approach my child's education is um, kind of educating them about it and then looking at the places where we can get, I don't want to say this because this is kind of diminishing it, but the most bang for our buck. And so um, if my child, though, got an amazing scholarship at a private school, maybe that's the place where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. Um, but it kind of just depends as to what Jake, kind of what Jake was saying. I don't know if it's radically different, but I will do the three points you asked to a private college, to a state school, and a nonlinear field. For a private college, I think if it can be justified at the time, um, depending on like my kids' needs, academic and social needs, based on the kids' goals, is there a reason we're set on this private school versus other options? Like, um, I'm not going to say no to private school, but I am a product of public school K through graduate school. Loyal is the first private school I've attended. So I think if they can justify it, um, that's a discussion to be had at the time. State school, gladly. I think in-state public tuition, I'm willing to pay that even if my kid isn't 100% sure because of the reasons we talked about before. A, gra a undergraduate degree is 
important in our world. And I'm, I'm okay with my kid, with my 18 year old, not being 100% sure what they want to do with their lives. That's very understandable. Um, and in-state public tuition is a risk I'm willing to take. It's a risk. You're, you're, it's a gamble anytime you're sending a kid to school and paying a whole bunch of money for that. Um, I feel like you're gambling in the sense that you're hoping you're investing in their future, but you don't know if that's what's actually happening. But in-state public tuition is a risk I'm willing to take on our child. Um, and then a non-linear field, um, at that point, we better be talking like step-by-step -step future plans and scholarships before we shell out any cash for that. Um, I know that the arts are incredibly important. I am a proponent of the arts. I'm a supporter. I am a monthly donator to NPR. Like, trust me, I am all for it. But if we are going to dive down that path, I, I will support you as long as there's a path to dive down. I, I think I will jump into, this is I think the point where I'm gonna make the comment about, um, as you said, Radhika, if supporting the arts is important and obviously, anyone who is making it through the quarantine doubting that needs to cancel all their sub streaming subscriptions and try going without the arts. Um, but that being said, I do think there are programs that do a better job in that area than others in terms of preparing you for how to make something out of that. And so I think that anyone with kids who, who are looking in, in that kind of space of doing something that's nonlinear, I think that there are ways to value that experience while also bracing your children um, or your friend's children or whoever you might be talking to with here's what the reality of that is in terms of ability to get a job, ability to earn, and student debt. And as we said earlier, it's hard to impress those things on a 17 or 18 year old. And I think that's why it needs to be a longer term conversation. I'm assuming that no one's kid is going into the arts and you have no idea that that was what they planned. So when you have someone who you're encouraging, you know, if you have a kid that you're giving violin lessons to or a kid who is doing theater, you can encourage them to do that while also early on building in that idea that if this is something that you plan to do, you need to take steps and be appropriate to that. And so when they're coming to making that actual decision, hopefully they can do it from a place of, um, you did the best that you could to inform them as a parent. And ultimately, by the time they're 18, then if they make mistakes, then to a certain extent, you wanna do what you can to take care of them. They're also an adult and can make those mistakes for themselves. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's smart. I, I will encourage my kids to, um, fail as quickly as possible at things so that they can learn from their mistakes as quickly as possible. And similar to Tammany Hall, vote, vote early, vote often, fail early, fail often, um, but do it earlier <laughs> in the process. Uh, so I'll, I'll answer for myself, attend a private college. Uh, like Jake, it depends. Um, I, we talked about name recognition and it's true. I went to high school with a number of people who went on to uh, Ivy League schools who would study history or would study geography and then went to go work in Wall Street just because they had Princeton on their resume. And so I do think that if any of my kids are lucky enough to be able to go to elite schools, I would be willing to entertain that. Outside of that, absolutely not. It's, it's, just, a, it's just price gouging for the sake of price gouging and I'm not willing to participate in that. Um, a public school without knowing where, what he would want to do, that one I would disagree with Radhika um, just because uh, I want to instill the value of money in our kids and not 
and not from a greed perspective, but from a freedom perspective, because without money, you have no freedom. You, money gives you the freedom to go and pursue things. If you are sick, you now have the freedom to go get healthcare. If you are lost, you now have the freedom to go call a cab. Uh, and I think that so many of our decisions that we've talked about tonight as adults stem from our relationship to money. The, and that relationship was only realized as adults uh, standing on our own two feet. And that relationship can't blossom if they are going straight from high school to college and mom and dad are subsidizing, you know, most things or, you know, loans are subsidizing those things. I think that building a healthy relationship with money for an 18 year old puts that person in a position to then look at college from the perspective of, okay, to an extent, this is a financial transaction and I need to, as Haley, I think correctly pointed out, get the most bang for my buck out of this. Um, which kind of leads into the third point of um, studying a non-linear field. Um, I agree with both Jim and Radhika. I, as a product of the arts, I think the arts are immensely valuable. I think that it taught me to look at problems as a circle that can be penetrated from lots of different angles rather than just a straight line that can only be solved in one particular way. Um, but at the same time, I went to school with plenty of people who uh, both graduate school and undergraduate where they studied the arts and then ended up doing something totally different. And those arts things they could still do, you know, to pursue on the side essentially. And that they're not something that will, um, again, teaching the value of money will not put money in their pocket or at least enough money in their pocket. And I think that that is, we can argue the merits of whether or not there's too much of a focus on money, particularly in American society. But the fact is, is this is the world that they're inheriting and they need to be able to appreciate that value and to be able to manipulate money in such a way where they can be financially independent. Well, with that, we come to the close of our roundtable discussion. But before we go, this is uh, the season finale of the Podvocate for 2020. Uh, Radhika and I will be continuing on and joining you all again in the fall. But Jake and Jim and Haley, for them, this is their last episode. So I thought it would be best to give the three of you guys an opportunity to share any closing remarks that you might have about your experiences here and what, what wisdom you wish to impart upon our listeners. First, I think the, the most important thing to acknowledge is how lucky I feel that um, not only I got to work with the four of you and, and form this team, um, but simultaneously how lucky I am that this is part of my law school experience. I think um, it's not a secret that law school has, has um, been a formative experience in my life, and it is for anyone that goes to law school. Um, and to have this as, as sort of, you know, one of the many pages of that book that I'm writing the in, in theory in my life. Um, it's awesome. It's, it's a privilege. And I'm so proud of the product that we have come up with. I'm so proud of how much we've all grown as a unit and individually. And for myself, I think, um, you know, this has been just so cool. Cool is the only word that, that I can think of. I mean, I've gotten to, to talk to some really interesting people about some really interesting things. Um, and it, you know, it serves as a, as a perfect encapsulation of my law school experience, which is, um, you know, just finding things that are interesting to me, um, researching them vigorously and just having candid conversations about them um, it's been awesome. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it continues to grow in the future. 
and uh, and being around next year too to see how the how the new faces sort of inherit what we've done and take the handoff and run with it. Yeah, I would say um, that the experience really exceeded my expectations. Um, I think that each of us really put a lot of work into this and um, law school is very hard. Uh, the first year of law school was extremely difficult for me, um, having not been in school for five years. And I think regardless of whether you came straight from undergrad or um, took some time off, law school is very tough. It's not the same as undergrad, at least in my experience at all. Um, and so I am very, I feel very grateful and fortunate um, that we were able to do this. And I mentioned um, in this episode that this was my first experience with private school. And I have to say that um, the amount of confidence that the faculty, at least at Loyola's Law School has um, and its students, and I don't think it's just these five students and pretty much everyone, um, and the, our ability to kind of just like do something like this with really very few limitations um, and so much support. I just am so grateful for that because I don't know if that was is true of um, other law schools. Um, I would like to believe it is, but I don't think that's the case. And I just want to say that I am grateful for all of us for putting in so much time. Um, and most importantly, I'm so grateful that the school was I'm so supportive of this because um, it's, I think, I hope that our listeners have gotten a lot of out of this as well. Um, but the people that we were able to talk to, I would have never been able to have these conversations with them um, had it not been for this outlet to have these discussions. So thank you all. And I, I agree with Jake that I'm really excited to see where the, where the new members take this and um, hopefully I can make a guest appearance next year too. Looping back to something that Matt said very early on in this episode, there was that discussion of how we're using our degrees uh, now that we're in law school and it, kind of in different tracks than what we might have envisioned prior to this. And uh, I don't know how much I'll be using my degree as a lawyer, but you can't say that I didn't use my degree in sound design while I was in law school. <laughs> um, I'm really grateful for having this opportunity. Uh, it's definitely one of those things that when I saw my ability to get involved in this, I kind of realized like you know if I'm ever gonna kind of have a last hurrah of using this skill set and being able to justify doing it uh, and not just do it as a hobby thing like here's that moment where I can say I got to to use my arts degree and use that experience to make a podcast for course credit and I think that having had such a good experience speaks to as has been said the quality of the team we have um, the support from the school to let us do this has been pretty awesome and yeah, it's it definitely been a highlight of my year. Uh, sad to be stepping away. Uh, won't say that I'm not going to be glad to get some more free time back, but uh, I, I wish Matt and Radhika the best with this moving forward. And I expect that if you're going to keep using my music, you're going to continue to give me a credit for it. Radhika, did you have anything you wanted to throw into? No, I'll always remember this year for so many different reasons. Yeah, law school's hard, but these are little moments of glitter in an otherwise <laughs> shit storm of dust, to be frank. Yeah. Um, and I'll be forever grateful, and I'm glad that it's preserved for posterity's sake. It's not over because it's always going to be on Apple and Stitcher and Spotify. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's bonded us for life, and for that, I'm really grateful. And I want to thank you all for a really fun year. I think 
I, I echo Jake's thought. This was just cool. There was, uh, is the most apt word to describe this. At, at the very least, uh, juxtaposed to any other law school experience, there's nothing that even comes close to what we were able to do this year, which was, I just had a blast. Thank you all for joining us today in this past year. This has been an incredible experience for all of us. And although it may not have ended the way we had hoped, this year had shown us what we can accomplish with a community behind us. Thank you for continuing to encourage us as students, as classmates, as friends to one another, both in the Loyola community and beyond. Witnessing the kindness, patience, and perseverance that you all have demonstrated over this past year, and especially during the last two months, makes us grateful and proud to call you colleagues and fellow Loyolans. Congratulations to the graduating 3Ls. We are certainly rooting for you. Now more than ever, this world needs you, it needs your knowledge, and it needs your skills. Many of you, and us here at the Podvocate, aim to use our JDs to make big changes in the world. But maybe in the short term, but maybe in the short term, let's instead committing to putting out some of our current dumpster fires. Think global, advocate local. Thank you all for listening. Take care of yourselves, take care of your families, and we'll see you in the fall. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources needed to make this show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, Dialogue DeNovo, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.